This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode was actually supposed to be released last week. And when my producer got my recording and started producing it, she texted me and let me know that once again, there was static and too much static to go ahead and release the episode. And I knew that since last week was my daughter's wedding, I just wasn't going to get another recording to be released last week. So I apologize for that. And we haven't figured out why the static comes, why it goes. There was an update to the system that I record in today. And so hopefully that will help. And I guess I just need to always, you know, record some test runs and make sure that they're sounding okay before I go ahead and record a whole episode. So speaking of my daughter's wedding, I have to say it was wonderful. And it was so good to see people, some people we haven't seen for a long time, other people, you know, we see more regularly, but it was just so nice to have her friends, our friends, family come and support her in this mile marker, you know, she and her now husband are taking in life. It was also really neat. My husband was able to marry them and that was just really something I will always remember having him be able to talk about, you know, her, talk about her once her husband entered her life and, you know, just to kind of be able to give his blessing as her father on this relationship and on this marriage as they go forward in life. And so it was just a really great day and a great celebration and had a lot of fun. And so it was, you know, it was a lot of work to put together a wedding and it was also, I would say, worth it. And everything turned out beautiful. So that was all perfect. I couldn't have asked for anything different or there was nothing, you know, that I felt like we left out. I mean, it wasn't, you know, some of those weddings that you see in reality TV shows. It was not like that. I don't really watch those, but my kids did at some point when they were growing up. And so it was not like that. And the good news is it does not have to be like those types of weddings that are just over the top ground to be absolutely beautiful. So today's episode is the third episode in the series that I'm doing on developing a self. And it might turn out a little bit longer than I originally thought, but I think that's okay. And there's just some things I want to um, introduce, people I want to talk about their work and, and how it shaped and influenced how we approach you know, treatment and mental health today. So I want to talk today about Dr. Carl Rogers. Now, he wrote a book on becoming a person. He wrote a lot of books, actually. But he wrote a book on becoming a person. It's a great book. I put it in every, every so many years. I don't know that there's a set number of years that I put it in my rotation to reread. And, you know, it's very fitting for this series that we're doing on developing a self. So I want to start out with one of the quotes from him from this book on becoming a person that I really like. He said, quote, we cannot change. We cannot move away from what we are until we thoroughly accept what we are. 
Then change seems to come about almost unnoticed, end quote. Now a little bit of history on Carl Rogers. He was born on January 8th, 1902 in Oak Park, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. His father was a civil engineer and a congregationalist by denomination. His mother, Julia M. Cushing, was a homemaker and a devout Baptist. And Carl was the fourth of their six children. Now, from what has been reported, Rogers was intelligent and could read well before he started kindergarten. And following an education in a strict religious and ethical environment, he was an altar boy, and he became a rather isolated, independent, and disciplined person. He also acquired knowledge and an appreciation for the scientific method in a practical world. When he was at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, his first career choice was agriculture, and then that was followed by history and then religion. At age 20, following a 1922 trip to China for an international Christian conference, he started to doubt his religious convictions. And so to help him clarify his career choice, he attended a seminar entitled, Why Am I Entering the Ministry? After which he decided to change his career. In 1924, he graduated from the University of Wisconsin and married Helen Elliott, who was also a fellow Wisconsin student and whom he had known from Oak Park. And then he enrolled at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Sometime afterward, it was reported that he became an atheist. And while early in his career, he referred to himself as an atheist, he eventually came to be described as an agnostic. However, in his later years, it is reported that he did speak about spirituality. One of the men who knew him and worked with him on a number of occasions during his final 10 years wrote, quote, in his later years, his openness to experience compelled him to acknowledge the existence of a dimension to which he attached such adjectives as mystical, spiritual, and transcendental, end quote. Rogers concluded that there is a realm beyond scientific psychology, a realm which he came to prize as, quote, the indescribable the spiritual, end quote. So after he had been in the seminary for two years, he left the seminary and started to attend Teachers College or Columbia University and obtained a master's in 1927 and then a PhD in 1931 in clinical psychology. Now, while he was completing his doctoral work, he started to work with kids. And in 1930, he served as a director of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children in Rochester, New York, which I think it's just, we know this, but it just makes me shake my head that in 1930, there is a Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children that as a species, we weren't better to kids. Anyway, from 1935 to 1940, he lectured at the University of Rochester and that is when he wrote his book, The Clinical Treatment of the Problem Child, in 1939, which was based on his experience in working with troubled kids. In 1940, Rogers became professor of clinical psychology at Ohio State University, where he wrote his second book, Counseling and Psychotherapy, in 1942. Now, in that book, Rogers suggested that the client, by establishing a relationship with an understanding, accepting therapist, could resolve difficulties and gain the insight necessary to restructure their life. Now, I also want to point out that it was kind of a big shift in the field 
when Carl Rogers started referring to clients as clients and not patients, you know, the patient word is more of a medical term and maybe implied more, you know, that something was inherently wrong with the individual. And so he made that shift and started referring to therapists and clients instead of patients. Now, while he was increasing his skills and his experience, a solid approach began to surface for him. It went through various different labels, his approach. One of the ones was client-centered therapy, and later that was called just person-centered therapy. And in true humanistic psychology, Rogers welcomed his theories being adapted by others to fit their needs. And, you know, it was wrote about him that it was his openness to possibilities and empathic nature that both drew people to him and encouraged criticism of his theories. His last years were devoted to applying his theories in situations of political oppression and national social conflict, traveling worldwide to do so. In Belfast, Northern Ireland, he brought together influential Protestants and Catholics. In South Africa, he brought together blacks and whites. In Brazil, he worked with people emerging from dictatorship to democracy. And in the United States, he worked with consumers and providers in the health field. His last trip at age 85 was to the Soviet Union, where he lectured and facilitated intensive experiential workshops, fostering communication and creativity. He was noted to be astonished at the number of Russians who knew of his work. Between 1974 and 1984, Rogers, together with his daughter, Natalie Rogers, and psychologists Maria Bowen, Maureen O'Hara, and John K. Wood, convened a series of residential programs in the United States, in Europe, Brazil, and Japan, which applied the person-centered approach, focusing on cross-cultural communications, personal growth, self-empowerment, and learning for social change. In 1987, Rogers suffered a fall that resulted in a fractured pelvis. He did have life alert, if you remember that. He had life alert and was able to contact the paramedics, and he had a successful operation. But his pancreas failed the next night, and he died a few days later after having a heart attack. One of Rogers' most famous quotes is, quote, Death is final, and accepting that is the most difficult thing to undertake. That loved one is not coming back and nothing can change that. Nothing compares to them. Life is precious and vulnerable, so be wise with how you choose to spend it, because once death arrives, there is no turning back." End quote. Now, Rogers believed that people were inherently good and creative, and that they became destructive only when a poor self-concept or external constraints overrode their valuing process. He believed that for a person to achieve self-actualization, they had to be in a state of congruence. So let's talk for a minute about what his concept of congruence was. So Rogers divided the self into two categories, the ideal self and the real self. The ideal self is the person you would like to be or the image of yourself that's kind of the highest when you're reaching your highest potential. And then the real self is what you really are. In the real world, our ideal self isn't really consistent with what is happening in our life. So we might have this idea of ourselves that, you know, I'm a pretty patient and non-judgmental, accepting person. And then I might be going through difficulties in my life and 
the reality of who I show up as, maybe more we've talked about in other episodes, maybe more of a trauma script that kicks in and I respond from that other place. Carl Rogers did acknowledge that the environment in which we grew up in shaped the real self. And he talked about how incongruence is the difference between the ideal self and the real self. And that part of therapy is to close that gap or narrow that gap, which would lead to congruence. When our thoughts about our real self and our beliefs about our ideal self are very similar and they're much more closely connected. He thought that high congruence would lead to a greater sense of self-worth and a healthy, productive life. One of the things, another quote by Carl Rogers, he said, quote, when the other person is hurting, confused, troubled, anxious, alienated, terrified, or when he or she is doubtful of self-worth, uncertain as to identity, then understanding is called for. The gentle and sensitive companionship of an empathic stance provides illumination and healing. In such situations, deep understanding is, I believe, the most precious gift one can give to another. He also talked about how becoming a person corresponds to letting go of inner resistance and masks. And we had to dig deeper into our true nature. He wrote, quote, It seems that gradually, painfully, the individual explores what is behind the masks he presents to the world and even behind the masks with which he has been deceiving himself. Thus, on an increasing degree, he becomes himself. Not a facade of conformity to others, not a cynical denial of all feeling, not a front of intellectual rationality, but a living, breathing, feeling, fluctuating process. In short, he becomes a person. Now, these quotes are taken from his book on becoming a person. And he wrote that to become a person, quote, means that a person is a fluid process. It's not a fixed and static entity, a flowing river of change, not a block of solid material, a continually changing constellation of potentialities, not a fixed quantity of traits, end quote. Now he believed that for people to grow and fulfill their potential, it was important that they are valued as themselves for who they are. And like I said, he acknowledged that our experiences external to us, right? Our experiences in life would shape whether or not we were able to value ourselves as ourselves. And he talked about in therapy, there was a need for the therapist to have deep and genuine caring for the client. He said the therapist may not approve of some of the client's actions, but the therapist does approve of the client and that that was inherent in the change model he talked about. In Rogers's view, psychological health is best achieved by the person who is able to remain in a state of continual change. He wrote that such a person is open to all experiences and is therefore able to assimilate and adapt to new experiences, whether good or bad. As I was saying earlier, he thoroughly disrupted the existing one-up relationship model for patient and therapist, and he was the first practitioner to popularize the term client instead of patient. He based this change on the idea that therapists were equal collaborators rather than elevated experts. And then later he chose the term person instead of client-centered therapy, he changed that to person-centered therapy 
which he believed to be a more helpful alternative. So in his view, people were experts on themselves. They hold the power for making change. And because of that, therapists needed their clients' personal expertise as much as any professional knowledge. In order to facilitate change, conversations are collaborative and exploring the changes clients would like to make and how they would like to go about it. Now, part of his model was this um, concept of unconditional positive regard. And he thought that receiving unconditional positive regard would help a person pursue growth and move towards greater congruence. He believed that every person possessed a deep need to grow toward their potential and that self-actualization is at the core of motivation and behavior. He wrote, accordingly, people who strive to fulfill their potential become more congruent, present, and flexible. With unconditional self-regard, they are open to experience and able to live in harmony with others. This is Roger's vision of a fully functioning person. We're going to talk a little bit more about his idea of a fully functioning person in more detail in a minute. So again, if you're hearing his theory and kind of thinking to yourself as a parent, you know, where it talks about this unconditional positive regard and that, you know, people who have unconditional self-regard are open to experience and able to live in harmony with others and become fully functioning. And if you're like me and you have awareness that you are not a perfect person, and that also means you are not a perfect parent, and that despite your intentions or despite your best wishes, your kids may not have always picked up this unconditional positive regard from you. That's okay. I think that he acknowledged that like, yes, we have circumstances and life stressors that people go through that then impact others around them. And I think that's where he was kind of looking at this model of the person-centered therapy as you know, hopefully training therapists to show up in the office or show up in a session with clients, able to maybe put away, you know, whatever stressors they were dealing with, that therapists could be also adaptive and integrated and know what is theirs versus what is the client's and be able to provide, sorry, this is the time of the day. I think that the Amazon truck comes and so the dog just gets a little protective there. That his idea of therapists was that unlike imperfect parents, therapists, when they were working, when they were doing their job, could do the job of unconditional positive regard for clients and create a collaborative relationship with them. He talked about how one of the most powerful tools for effective therapy is accurate empathy. And research shows that accurate empathy can enable positive change more than any other skill. Now, it's important to know that Roger's definition of empathy doesn't suggest a therapist has to share the same experiences or know exactly what the client has gone through, has the same feelings, but he thought of empathy as a learnable clinical skill. Now, I don't think it can only be learned if you're a clinician. I think it's a skill that is learnable. And perhaps, you know, if your parents interacted with you that way, that might just be something that you know how to do. And if not, the good news is it is learnable. For Rogers, the idea of empathy 
means that we enter the perceived world of another person and we listen with sensitivity, showing no fear or judgment towards what they express. And the goal is to understand their perspective on a deep level. In Roger's approach, this is accomplished through reflective listening. Now, early in his career, and I think this still happens even though he's, you know, passed away many decades ago, but early in his career, Carl Rogers was distressed by misrepresentations of his non-directive approach. That was one of the labels of his modality early on was non-directive approach to therapy, which was kind of like the therapist just takes a back seat and just kind of listens and just simply repeats the last few words spoken by the client. And if you've had a therapist like that, that doesn't really feel good. And you don't necessarily feel this therapeutic relationship that has formed. You know, I, I even noticed with COVID coming and, and having much more um, online or telehealth therapy sessions, you know, sometimes I would have clients who would say, you know, are you listening to me? And I would be like, yeah, I, I am. Like, or are you doing something else? Are you distracted? And I was like, no, I'm just... Like I might've looked out the window if something distracted me for a moment, but I might do that in person too. And I think it felt differently on screen than maybe it does in person. And, you know, I also had clients that were like, what, what are you looking at? Like, cause on their screen, right? It looked like I was looking up and on my screen, I'm just looking straight ahead at my screen. And so, you know, there was some dialing in how to, connect with clients and how to really show up in a way that was collaborative and attuned to clients. It reminds me when I was in eighth grade, eighth and ninth grade. So in junior high, I had a math teacher, Mrs. Anderson. And I have a lot of stories about Mrs. Anderson, but one of the ones that this reminds me of, right, is often she would say to me, so my maiden name is McAdams and she would just, you know, call me by my last name. And she would say, McAdams, you're not paying attention or you're not listening, right? And I could, I mean, I probably was, not probably, I was distracted. I was thinking about something else, but I had also learned, and I did this with my mom too. And I had to get really adept at learning how to do it with my mom, but I could easily repeat back what she was saying, even though it really had not integrated into what I was learning or what I was actually bringing in as information and knowledge. And so I think, you know, sometimes we have that misunderstanding as therapists that reflective listening is just repeating back to the client what they're saying and just in their words, repeating it back. Now, sometimes when I'm teaching active listening to a new therapist, or maybe I'm, you know, uh, teaching it to a couple so that they can start to use that skill outside of session. I will say, I think it's important that you use your partner's words because when you're using your own words that they did not use, you're trying, maybe you're not trying, but you're putting in your interpretation of it instead of really getting at understanding what's going on for them. And when I'm reflecting words back, it may or may not be an accurate reflection of what the individual is feeling. And just, you know, I think 
that idea that a therapist was just kind of non-directive. The client talked, the therapist repeated what the client said, and that was therapy. I think, you know, that was distressing to Carl Rogers, and it should be distressing to Carl Rogers, and it should be distressing to clients if that's how your therapist approaches therapy, is that they're just repeating back to you what you're saying. You might start to question their clinical skill level. Because I think there's more than just repeating the words. And that's what I think even eighth grade me understood. I knew that I was simply repeating words and I wasn't actually learning. I struggled in math. I wasn't actually learning. I couldn't have, you know, taught the concept to anybody, but I had heard the words that she said. So to fully understand kind of what Carl Rogers was advocating for, he was advocating for a thoughtful practice that allowed therapists to reach a more meaningful, nuanced understanding of their clients' perspectives. Now, that is more than just repeating words back. And that is gonna give a client a sense of being understood, being seen, being heard, being believed. I've had clients have reactions just to that, right? Just to them talking about a particular part of their story and me as the therapist, hearing them, seeing that, believing that, that can be quite emotional for clients if that has not been their experience in many of their relationships. I think one of the ways we talk about that now is we talk about how that, I mean, yes, it creates an unconditional positive regard, but we would also talk about safety and attunement. Those are kind of the words that we use today Now, another key influence of Roger's work was his emphasis on evocation, which has been expanded in methods like motivational interviewing. Now, when I was going to grad school in mid-90s, 95, I think is when I graduated, I don't know that we were teaching motivational interviewing. I don't think I was taught that. I mean, I think I learned that later, but not when I was in grad school. But hold on, I'm going to just look that up really quick. So yeah, just looking that up really quick on Google, it looks like motivational interviewing kind of came about in the 80s. Um, I found 1980, I found 1983. And, you know, there's a couple of different components to motivational interviewing. The one that typically is used the most often is empathy. And I I don't know that there's a direct correlation between Carl Rogers' uh, person-centered therapy approach and motivational interviewing, there are some overlays for sure. And I think even in motivational interviewing, they do acknowledge or give a hat tip to Carl Rogers and the work that he did. Motivational interviewing is really asking open questions that are affirmative and reflective. Some examples of motivational interviewing might be, you know, how can I help you with, or like, you know, I usually start a first session with a client just saying, you know, what what brings you to therapy? help me understand something. We can ask clients about that. You know, could you tell me more about this or how would you like things to be different? You know, what are the good things about something or what are the less good things about it? When would you be most likely to blank, right? What do you think you will lose if you give up this behavior, something like that, this relationship? So those are examples of motivational interviewing. And so Carl Rogers' emphasis on evocation, and then that was expanded in motivational interviewing or other methods. But Carl Rogers strongly believed 
in each person's autonomy, and he often reminded therapists not to tell clients what they can and can't do. Instead, he suggested practitioners honor the fact that people get to make their own life choices. Carl Rogers often said, the good life is a process, not a state of being. It is a direction, not a destination. He also talked about how every person wants to be healthy and well on some level. And they have an innate tendency to move in the right direction with nurturing and acceptance. He talked about how rather than viewing a person's issues as problems that the therapist has to correct, evocation calls forth the person's own motivations and wisdom and abilities. And the implicit message is you have what you need and together we're going to find it. Now, he talked about how in being authentic, the therapist shows that they're trustworthy, which helps in building a good therapeutic relationship with the client. It also, that therapeutic relationship serves as a model for clients and encourages them to be true to their own selves and express their thoughts and feelings without any sort of false front. In person-centered therapy, the role of the psychotherapist is to create an environment that stimulates personal growth and introspection. So the goal for the psychotherapist is to create a relationship based on understanding, acceptance, warmth, and sincerity. The idea is that the client would over time assume this attitude with relation to one's own self by reciprocity. We know that the most common root cause of psychotherapy problems is that our psychological defense mechanisms make us blind to the causes of our stress. And Carl Rogers thought that such positive relationship would allow the individual to open up to his own problems, his own defenses, the way he or her got in their own way, and that they would start solving them. He talked about how the client would have increasing awareness of their own needs and make their behavior more congruent with their goals. He believed that the true self is a positive and constructive being. And I think that's an important assumption to start with, that the true self is positive and constructive. You know, he deplores the view that a man or a person, let's say, is a beast shackled by social order. He talked about how instead the fact that we act in discord with oneself, that is often the source of our problems. So a question the psychotherapy should facilitate answering is, who am I? And in the process of this personality change, which he talked about is more or less about maturing, the locus of control is moved from being external, like what is expected of me, what do others expect from me, to internal, what do I want, what do I need? And he talked about how the person would grow more aware and accepting of themselves, and they would tend to view their own emotions as something truly their own, and not as something external to themselves or even something that is problematic. Carl Rogers talked about the role unconditional love plays when we are developing self-concept, which is the idea or the concept we have of ourself. He talked about how to fully actualize, people are raised in conditions of unconditional positive regard where no conditions of worth are present. He said, when people are raised in an environment of conditional positive regard in which worth and love are only given under certain conditions, they must match these conditions to receive positive regard. The ideal self is determined based on these conditions, which contributes to incongruence and a gap between 
the real self and the ideal self. Now, again, like I said, he understood that not all of us are raised in those conditions of unconditional positive regard or unconditional love that led to this self-concept that would help us fully actualize. He talked about how these following conditions were necessary for any therapeutic relationship. He said two people are in psychological contact or a psychological relationship. The second stage is the client is in a state of incongruence and they tend to be vulnerable or anxious about that. You know, if, if we get a client in who doesn't see a need to change, doesn't feel anxious about how they are in their life, maybe somebody else is bringing them in, but they're not feeling vulnerable or they're not really asking themselves questions that would lead to change, that's not really gonna happen. Change is not going to happen. He talked about the third thing that is necessary for a therapeutic relationship is that the therapist is integrated into the relationship. And it's important that the therapist is congruent, right? They're aware of their own experience and they're accepting of their own experience. Fourth, the therapist experiences unconditional positive regard toward the client. And the therapist acts congruently. Who you see from week to week is congruent, right? It's not vastly different people that you're showing up and sitting in a session with. Fifth, the therapist is empathetic to the client's frame of reference and communicates this to the client. The therapist makes every effort to understand the world as seen through the eyes of their client. Sixth, the therapist expresses acceptance and understanding of the client's perspective in such a way that the client expresses feeling accepted and understood. Now he asserted that these conditions are all that is necessary for a client's personality to change. Or maybe we would describe that a little bit differently today. And we would say for a client to become a person, right? To develop themselves and to be able to have less incongruence between their ideal self and the real self. He said, you know, when these conditions are in play, therapy becomes useful and the time that it takes for a client to accomplish understanding who they are varies. There's a story that he talks about that I think is just a great example how he approached therapy and how he saw clients um, and their adaptability and their internal inherent drive for growth. So he says, quote, whether we are speaking of a flower or an oak tree, of an earthworm or a beautiful bird, of an ape or a person, we will do well, I believe, to recognize that life is an active process, not a passive one. Whether the stimulus arises from within or without, whether the environment is favorable or unfavorable, the behaviors of an organism can be counted on to be in the direction of maintaining, enhancing, and reproducing itself. This is the very nature of the process we call life. This tendency is operative at all times. Indeed, only the presence or absence of this total directional process enables us to tell whether a given organism is alive or dead. The actualizing tendency can of course be thwarted or worked, but it cannot be destroyed without destroying the organism. I remember that in my boyhood, the bin in which we stored our winter's supply of potatoes was in the basement, several feet below a small window. The conditions were unfavorable, but the potatoes would begin to sprout. Pale white sprouts, so unlike the healthy green shoots they sent up when planted in the soil in the spring. 
but these sad, spindly sprouts would grow two or three feet in length as they reached toward the distant light of the window. The sprouts were in their bizarre, futile growth, a sort of desperate expression of the directional tendency I have been describing. They would never become plants, never mature, never fulfill their real potential. But under the most adverse circumstances, they were striving to become. Life would not give up, even if it could not flourish. In dealing with clients whose lives have been terribly warped, in working with men and women on the backwards of state hospitals, I often think of those potato sprouts. So unfavorable have been the conditions in which these people have developed that their lives often seem abnormal, twisted, scarcely human. Yet the directional tendency in them can be trusted. The clue to understanding their behavior is that they are striving in the only ways that they perceive as available to them. To move towards growth, toward becoming. To healthy persons, the results may seem bizarre and futile, but they are life's desperate attempt to become itself. This potent constructive tendency is an underlying basis of the person-centered approach. Now, as I talked about, you know, Rogers believed that anyone can achieve their goals. For him, this meant that the person is in touch with the here and now. They know and have an understanding of their subjective experiences and feelings and are continually growing and changing. He regarded the fully functioning person as an ideal figure and the one that people do not ultimately achieve. But he talked about how it is a process of becoming and changing. So he listed the five characteristics of a fully functional person as, number one, they're open to experiences, positive and negative emotions, and negative feelings are worked through. Number two, existential living is in touch with more experiences in life as they occur living in the moment and appreciating the present. Number three, trust feelings of gut reactions. People's own decisions are the right ones and we should trust ourselves to make the right choices. Number four, a person doesn't stay safe all the time. They seek new experiences and so risk-taking is part of a life. Number five, a person who is living a fulfilled life, they're happy and satisfied and always looking for new challenges and new experiences. Now, some of the criticisms of person-centered therapy include, you know, there are several concerns about this therapeutic approach beginning with a lack of suitable training. Now, Rogers himself did not feel that specific training was needed. I'm not sure, you know, what that looked like because he certainly had people that he was talking to about his modality and maybe he just thought that the degree itself was the specific training that was needed. I think we have a different sense of that today where, you know, we have a lot more certifications and there is, I think, an appreciation of, you know, not just reading about how to approach things, but actually being trained in that. And, you know, one of the things that I have seen in my time in the field, you know, I I would say initially some of the trainings that I went to were more lecture format you know, you'd go, you'd sit for all day and somebody would talk to you about their research, would talk to you about their modality, would talk about whatever they were training on, right? And I think what I have seen more in the last, I would say maybe 10 years, is that part of the training is you actually becoming part of that, right? It's yes, there's lecture, yes, there is teaching, but then there is a part of you practicing, right? So they might put you in dyads or triads 
two or three people, right? And you alternate. Who's the therapist? Who's the client? You know, if you have a third person, they're the observer. And then we rotate, right? And everybody has a turn being the therapist. Everybody has a turn being the client. Everybody has a turn being the observer. And I think there's just more understanding that interactive training and interactive teaching is a way that we learn best, right? That simply lecture or just reading is not actually the best way for us to learn something and to retain what we are learning. Um, Another criticism is that, you know, because the principles of person-centered therapy can be extrapolated from interviews with Carl Rogers or books written by Rogers, there's a lot of room for interpretation. And I, I can see that concern because I think, you know, even like with the EMDR training, I got my EMDR training, I think in 2011, 2012, and there's been some really big changes to the communities of EMDR. And I see, you know, as it's gotten much more popular and clients are asking for it and they know to ask for it, a lot of therapists are getting training in EMDR. And, you know, I talk to clients who have, you know, worked with other EMDR practitioners and it seems like there's ample room for interpretation in the training. And I think, you know, as I talk to some of the clients who have worked with other EMDR practitioners, I totally understand the concerns that could be here when we're just leaving it up to people to interpret what that looks like and how that should be practiced. Now, another concern is that not all clients are comfortable talking about themselves and that could lead to awkward, uncomfortable silence in therapy that makes the client maybe feel judged or misunderstood and that gets in the way of person-centered therapy. I think if you've got a practitioner with some experience, they can also help fill some of that space and get the client more comfortable talking about themselves. Or, you know, the therapist can be asking some questions that elicit or make it easier for clients to talk about themselves. Now, some therapists believe that the six conditions are helpful, but they're not sufficient or that they are needed, but they're not sufficient that, you know, these therapists often utilize other tools and techniques to support therapy. And so, you know, this type of therapy is called integrative therapy, which is Carl Rogers would say it's no longer person-centered therapy in his true sense. You know, but I think since Carl Rogers' model of person-centered therapy, you know, we've had more developments in terms of trauma, attachment issues, and how to specifically treat some of those. And so maybe I think his are helpful. I think, you know, under his umbrella of the conditions for the therapeutic relationship, those things need to be present before you know, bringing on board a trauma modality or something like that. There also can be, it seems to be that there's little evidence-based research supporting the effectiveness of this form of therapy. So the central question is, do the conditions lead to improvement or are they a consequence of it? I would think, you know, either way, whether the conditions are leading to the improvement or those conditions are a consequence of the improvement, I think that's good. I think If you were to ask clients if they were satisfied with their therapeutic experience, you'd probably get them saying yes. I think there's also been, you know, more talk again. This is since I've been graduated into the field and maybe starting, you know, in the 2000s, just about that role that the therapist plays. Again, not in terms of taking a one-up position as the expert and kind of creating some distance between themselves and the client, but in you know, attuning in 
feeling themselves and being able to differentiate what is theirs and what's going on in their life versus what the client walks in the room with and and can the therapist feel that and enter into that with the client in a way that is productive. And I think we are learning that how the therapist feels in the therapeutic relationship does have a positive outcome on affecting treatment goals. Now, regardless of therapeutic styles that we learn during undergraduate and graduate studies, until you start working with clients, you really can't develop your own therapeutic style. That comes with time in the field. You know, and I I tell new therapists, you know, and they're coming in, usually we get them in their second year of a master's program. And I just tell them like, you kind of got to jump in. You got to be able to get through the therapeutic hour and you'll start to Hopefully by the time they're graduating, you know, if they've worked with us for a year, they're starting to get a feel for their therapeutic style. I also think it's one reason why programs require a lot of hours of client therapist interaction. And before you can even get licensed, you know, fully licensed, I've talked about that in another episode, there's just a lot of hours that are required between the client and therapist and that is supervised. Now, Carl Rogers' insights into the client therapist relationship Specifically, that there is a relationship. Those insights are important. And acknowledging that the interaction between the two people can and does affect the possible outcomes, advanced future therapeutic techniques and approaches that happened after his model. I think describing the person as a client instead of a patient shifted the mindsets of both parties, both the client and the therapist. I also really like the understanding and believing that all organisms have an actualizing tendency towards growth and that this tendency is ongoing, that has influenced a lot of positive psychology practices today. It's impacted work in the areas of mindset, resilience, flow, creativity, and strengths. Now I wanna end with one of my other favorite quotes. I have this on a canvas hanging in the Salt Lake office, and it's by Carl Rogers. He says, quote, people are just as wonderful as sunsets, if you let them be. When I look at a sunset, I don't find myself saying, Soften the orange a bit on the right-hand corner. I don't try to control a sunset. I watch with awe as it unfolds. The end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.